0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Many despise the arrival of a post-truth world and fear politicians who blatantly manipulate facts and peddle falsehoods. But does this rely on assuming that truth is objective? and that falsehoods can be simply identified? Does the demise of truth mark the end of centuries of progress? Or is truth a construct to the powerful, and post-truth a revolution against elites? Philosopher Hilary Lawson, historian of political thought Hannah Dawson, and columnist Matthew Dancona debate the existence of truth. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice, and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Now over to Robert Ronan-Smith, who hosts today's debate.
2: I was kind of amazed to think we've even got to the point of talking about post-truth. I mean, I thought, if you think about the long perspective here, that historically the Enlightenment progresses in science and so on had taken us to a point where we were fairly... Reliable that uh, truth is something that could be depended upon, could be measured, could be ascertained and scientifically agreed, and then suddenly that seems to have changed. You know, how did that change? How has truth become this very contestable subject when we have all of the mechanisms necessary for establishing, it seems, more and more objectivity? And I suppose one of the key moments in all of that was the establishment of Wikipedia. If You can remember that seems like an old technology now, but it seemed to be saying, look, we can make truth even more reliable by stopping it being a top-down generation of so-called facts by the elite and allowing everybody now to contribute to what should be, in theory, a much more robust account of the world because it involves more people. But, of course, uh, although on the one hand that democratization of knowledge brought more and more information, it also brought more and more distortion as well, and the kind of wiki world has led, I suppose, ultimately to the production of what we now called alternative facts and the idea that actually truth as a secure concept has been rattled because now it's about subjective truth or positioning rather than objective certainty. So I think that's probably why we're here talking about this subject. And I'm going to, as I say, ask each of the panellists to uh, give us, I suppose, an opening salvo on the subject, and then we'll get into a bit more detail. So Hilary, would you like to start?
3: So I guess post-truth began as a criticism, a gibe, really, against politicians who were playing fast and free with the facts, but it didn't take long before that shifted to become a description of our age, an age of perspectival, alternative accounts of the world, and indeed incompatible ones. It's begun to look... Impossible that we could find a place where we could see things clearly, as it were, see through to the truth, that we could find an outlook which was not uh, a function of culture, history, language, and of course, even our own biology, that our perspectives are all a function of all of those things. And we can't find an Archimedean point from which to view things and see through To an ultimate truth. And of course, there are many who are troubled by this, who hanker after that single truth that we're all heading towards and gradually uncovering and want to go back to it. But it's not going to happen. It is over. It's been coming for a long time, but it is over. And what we are going to have to address is what is it to operate in a world in which we cannot arrive at truth and reality? and we are operating within our perspectives. Now, one of the things that has always rather puzzled me, because over the years there are many realists I've debated with who become uh, rather irate at the idea that they're losing this religious uh, notion of reality and truth that they want to appeal to. And i have puzzled about why they're so troubled about this. And I think the reason that they're troubled is because they're scared that in a world where one's given up on the fantasy of reality and truth, that we will then be in a situation where um, anything goes, and you can make up what you feel like, and only the people who shout loudest, longest, win. But that's a profound misunderstanding of what is involved in giving up on reality and truth. Because we operate instead with our models, our, our narratives of the world, what I would call our closures. And of course, we have to get those models and narratives to work. We have to refine them and make them better so they operate more effectively. And in order to do that, we have to use good old enlightenment strategies of uh, observation and reason. We have to look at our our, our models and metaphors of the world and, and, and make them more effective. It doesn't mean to say that just anything goes, because we'll just end up with narratives that don't work. But what we do have to give up uh, is the uh, idea, the fantasy, as I say, of uh, reality and truth, which interestingly, I think, echoes the pre-enlightenment fantasy, the religious belief in some sort of um, other sort of, uh, divine being that we are gradually trying to understand. No, that's not what is going on. We are not doing that sort of stuff. Our accounts of the world, as I say, are our tools uh, that enable us to intervene to achieve things. They're not about uh, seeing some ultimate metaphysical uh, truth. And we shouldn't be frightened of losing it. Far from it. We should see the huge potential in the idea of being able to create new narratives and new closures which will enable us to do things which we can't currently do in the world and make the world a better place. Thank you, Hilary. So
2: what started like a council of despair becomes a council of hope. So the fantasy of truth has popped, it's over, but it brings new opportunities. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you,
0: Robert. I entered this uh, Philosopher's Symposium through the tradesman's entrance as a journal <laughs> as a journalist so you'll have to forgive me for doing so but I come at this subject as a practitioner of journal- political journalism in particular and I became interested in the whole idea of post-truth as many people did um, after 2016 and I wrote a short book last year about it and um, I-, I think the, f- the first thing I'd say about the whole post-truth concept is that the first question a lot of people have asked me is what makes it different from lying. What makes it, what distinguishes it from falsehood. And I think what does make it different is that it's to do with the relationship between emotion and fact in people's decision making. What was very clear in the election of Trump and in the Brexit decision making was that emotion had achieved a new primacy. That was obviously troubling, if, as Hillary says, you were brought up in the Enlightenment tradition. This was a, a very stark and and real and contingent challenge to that. Why did it particularly happened at this moment? I think there are lots of factors, and one could go into many of them, but just two strike me as particularly important. One is that the collapse, like dom- dominoes, uh, in, in the trust in the institutions which had mediated truth in the past. I think the financial crash was very important, but also in this country, parliamentary expenses. I think that uh, the problems the BBC has been through are very important, and so on and so on and so on. And institutional... Um, mediation of truth simply doesn't work anymore. And the second was the the uh, weaponization of digital technology at a pace that I think people are finding very difficult to to keep pace with. Governments are finding it impossible to keep pace with. We've gone from the invention of fire to Edison in about ten years. People forget that Facebook was only invented in 2004, and it's already going into its first existential crisis 14 years later. So we can be forgiven for for, for having struggle to keep up with this. And I think it has had radical impact upon the way that we speak to one another, we communicate, that it it has created vulnerabilities in that system, which is not to say that old media was perfect, because goodness goodness knows it wasn't. But uh, the new technology really, with all its possibilities, has also created radically new uh, systems which are vulnerable to uh, manipulation, as we've seen in the growth of the populist right, in the uh, scraping off of information from social media in, in campaigns and so on and so on. And I think the consequence of that is that it's become much harder to, um, to, to kind of uh, assert expertise and to assert um, uh, that this is the, 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 the you are a trusted source. That, 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 that old-fashioned idea has certainly withered, and it's interesting Hillary thinks it's gone for good. I mean, we, we'll see. Um, there's only one way to find out. But I do think that that it is is a genuine, at the very least, it is a genuine crisis. Uh, It's one that most of the the, the people you would expect to deal with are singularly unfitted to deal with it. And people are struggling badly. Um, I think that there are a number of things that can be done. um, And there are practical steps that can be taken. We'll perhaps talk about that a little bit more in the discussion that follows. Um, I'm particularly interested in digital literacy. But I, I, I think one of the things to point out, just in closing, is that there's been a tendency in discussion of post-truth to limit it to the political sphere. I think that's a very big mistake. The, the fake news and so on have been, has become an almost meaningless term that's bandied around between the producers of fake news and the consumers and to the point that the currency is terribly debased. I'm just as interested in the rise again of pseudoscience. Flat Earth beliefs, which until very recently were absolutely fringe belief, are now signed up to by 16 million Americans. And my favorite uh, tweet of all time is the Flat Earth Society is going global. <laughs> <laughs> which I, I think is, is um, uh, just, just, go- just, just, just absolutely, absolutely golden. Uh, and I, almost worth the whole thing, really. Um, But uh, conspiracy theories uh, have never been more popular and more troublingly, um, Holocaust denial has become par for the course in a way that it really wasn't. When you go back to the Irving trial, it looked as though that uh, would never be put to bed entirely, but it had been really driven off to the fringes. It has now become uh, digitally, at least, mainstream. And if you do a Google search on the Holocaust, you'll be horrified at what comes up because, um, you know, quite often four out of ten of the top searches are Holocaust sites. Um, which is obviously disgusting to anyone uh, of any decency, but is horrifying if you think about the impact that might have on a a child who was researching an essay on the Holocaust. I mean, these have have real-life, real-time implications. So I think it is something we have to take extremely seriously and not limit to the political sphere, and I think it's also something that can only be dealt with uh, collaboratively. The the solutions will not come top-down. This is a civic crisis and one that must be taken as such.
2: Thanks, Matthew. And that tweet is, is priceless, isn't it? How about you, Hannah? How do you come at this subject?
4: Well, I find myself in this sort of very painful dilemma, I have to say, and sort of somewhat torn between these two positions. So I'm an academic, I'm trained as a historian and as a philosopher, and I'm trained to be sceptical about truth, not just in the ways that Hillary's talked about, the idea that Truth is relative, that we all have our own truths. For example, you know, just thinking about our experience, our truth right now, I have a very different perspective, a very different version of what's going on this minute than you do. There's that very sort of basic relativism point, but there's also the kind of deeper structural point, um, which is that language, which is the medium in which we express truth, is always necessarily, inevitably going to be interpretative. It's going to, as Hillary sometimes frames it, it's going to close our interpretations of things in a particular way. So for example, if you think about a very, what sounds like a very sort of mundane statement of truth from history, like the English Civil War broke out in 1642. All of that is contestable. All of that is a choice in language. So England, it's it's controversial to talk about England, Scotland and Ireland were heavily involved to to describe it as a civil war, describes that the country as a whole was divided, whereas in fact very few people were um, actually invested at that point in the war. One might also, as has sometimes been done, want to describe it as a revolution as opposed to a civil war. So the point is that the language that we choose to describe things is always going to be active, constructive, interpretative. The world does not come to us in truths. We write those truths in quite a kind of fundamental way. So that's my kind of considered epistemological position, if you like. And then we had what Matthew's talking about, which is 2016, where everything seemed to go, well, from my point of view, my uh, very particular point of view, desperately wrong. Um, and, and we entered this post-truth world where politicians were, as Hillary has said, playing fast and loose with the truth. Where you had, um, you know, Trump's campaign on the morning of his inauguration putting out pictures of the inauguration which were not of the inauguration. You have this kind of radical uh, dislocation from truth, at which point I found myself running <laughs> with open arms back to this concept. So uh, this is my dilemma, that I'm epistemologically kind of committed to be skeptical about truth, but I'm kind of morally committed to it. Um, and, and that, I think, you know, trying to work out how we might move through the horns of that dilemma is something that, that we'll probably go on to talk about. And certainly in the end, I want to say that we have to be able to point to facts of the matter. And one clear fact, for example, here to talk about the millions of Jews that were murdered in the Holocaust is a fact of the matter. Um, but I want to end with a, a way in which we might think about truth, not about, about post truth, rather, not in a sort of de- necessarily bad, in a bad light. Post truth, the kind of history of post-truth, that's to say the history of postmodernism in a way, has actually, in my view, been somewhat on the side of the angels. So The idea that there might be multiple perspectives has been a very kind of politically liberating one whereby the old monolithic narratives, which were for the most part written by the powerful, have been fragmented. So in history, for example, it's not the case just that um, there's one story, there's one truth to be told about British history, which is a story of kings and queens, which is what many of us learnt, There is a story about women's history, there is a story about black Tudors, there is a story of the voices of the oppressed. And and it seems to me that that is a very kind of exciting way in which post-truth intersects with social justice insofar as it um, enables us to hear the voices of the previously silenced.
2: Thank you in particular for the clarity around that tension between the epistemological and the moral. I find that very compelling and helpful indeed. Our first kind of sub-theme, although in a way it's a super-theme or super-theme, is, well, what is truth anyway? Not an easy subject, but, you know, in philosophical debates we sometimes have, you talked about rationalists, Hilary, we sometimes have philosophers of mathematics, for example, who will say, well, there are certain things which are indisputably true. We're not talking about historical facts. We're talking about Mathematical facts, like 2 plus 2 equals 4, that is indisputably, universally and perennially true. So even if there are contestable historical facts, can't we even rely on numbers? Can you help us just a bit, just to ground us somewhere in this sort of otherwise flapping you know, canvas that we can try and nail down?
4: Well, I mean, as I've already... Lo- um sort of suggested, I don't think there's a straightforward answer to that. So I think that what I've already said about the way in which language frames the world in this quite constructive, active, interpretative way, but I don't nonetheless think that there's not a world out there to inform what can and cannot be said. And a sort of way of thinking about that sometimes is to think about the different ways in which we map things. One might choose to map the world um, in terms of an ordnance survey map, and that'll be for those people who are interested in trekking or walking, or we might want to map it in terms of a tube map. And those are radically different ways of talking about um, the world, but they're both, in some deep sense, veridical. So if you think about the tube, you just can't put Sloan Square Next to Highbury in Islington. I mean, thank goodness, frankly. But, 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 but I think, um, speaking as, a, as someone from Hackney, um, yes. So I, think, so, I, so I think that there is a world that presses on language. Um, and I think that, so that's the kind of, um, as it were, that's to talk about the world. But I also think that there's an important point to be made about justice and, and the moral sphere, which is a, more complex in a way, because that's more contestable. But even then, I think we have to return to the forensic case, the case of the, of the court of law, and the idea that there is a fact of the matter there as to whether someone is or is not guilty.
2: I'm slightly tempted to take the panel into a game of Mornington Crescent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll avoid that temptation. I wondered, Hillary, maybe to exaggerate, your position, if I may, to provoke you a bit, presumably you'd say, well, this notion of the fact of the matter is itself a complete fantasy.
3: I, I would say the attachment to the idea that there are facts which underlie our frameworks and narratives is not only a mistake, I think it's a dangerous mistake. But I do agree entirely with what Hannah was saying, which is that in my way of solving this puzzle that we can't ground our outlooks on some ultimate reality, but on the other hand, we want to be able to intervene and say, no, you really can't say that, is the point that I was making before. We don't have to give up observation and reason. I think, indeed, culturally, we're at risk of doing exactly the reverse than we should be doing which is we're at risk of holding on to the idea of truth and reality, so we all somehow think there is an ultimate truth, but abandoning um, observation and reason. If somebody makes a claim, we challenge it in terms of we take their perspective and we say, okay, let's look at it like that and see whether this applies. So if uh, if somebody puts up a picture of the inauguration, which they claim is one thing, and we have some evidence that it isn't like that. We can point to that in the context of their perspective. That's what reason and observation do. We hold people to account, and we should more than ever be making sure that those good enlightenment strategies are employed. But let's not imagine that if we employ them, we somehow uncover some metaphysical truth. We have to give this up. It's very dangerous. It makes people think that they're right and they try and impose it on other people. And that usually comes to no good. Okay, so we
2: don't have to throw out the baby of logic and observation and reason with the the bathwater of truth. How are you seeing this, Matthew, from your perspective? And the the big question here is, what is truth? It's a hopelessly large question. Yes.
0: Quite often these arguments can turn into the sort of postmodern spurs versus the empiricist arsenal, and uh, it, does, it doesn't necessarily get you very far. Um, I mean, I, to deal with the first part, the Spurs part, I mean, I, I, I totally agree that postmodernism has taken a rather unnecessary kicking in the last few years. Actually, from it has emerged a tremendous enrichment of our understanding of narratives the role of power and language, and these are real social gains and they shouldn't be dismissed as readily as they are. Um, I, I'm, I quite like some of the, the new realism of people like Ferraris, Neko, and so on, where I, I think there is still an irreducible um, fact in saying things like, I've just had a car crash, or I've got cancer, um, or, the, you know, please stop pushing that corkscrew into my ear. Um, I I don't think that those things are either dangerous or um, metaphysically um, uh, contentious uh, contentious or or risky to say. Um, However, where I do agree with Hillary is that there is is a strand of Enlightenment thinking which is actually, and ironically, teleological and almost religiously providential in its kind of furious pursuit of the Cap-T truth. And I don't think that's... The answer at all. I'm, I'm, I, I'm by, by the nature of what I do for a living, I'm more concerned with praxis. And I suppose what bothers me is when the spokeswoman of the uh, of the president elected the or the president by then of the United States comes up and says, "Well, look, you know, you've got your version, Chuck, of the inaugural, and I've got mine, and mine are alternative facts. Something has gone wrong. We need Hillary's uh, appeal to reason and the tools of the Enlightenment at the very least, and." And, and that's we're in a kind of emergency situation where it's good that we can all agree on that because we we, we really need them, um, and they are under attack from from people who are not philosophers. I suppose that's my 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 concern is that the, that those those, those principles, that the the um, the the things we retain from the Enlightenment that are worth retaining, are under heavy bombardment at the moment from people who would have us embrace pseudoscience, who would have us embrace right-wing populism who would have us embrace a form of tribalism that leads to the building of walls and the, you know, the, 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 the identitarianism which is pulling people apart. And I see these as real and contingent problems. OK, well, let me pick up on that, Matthew,
2: um, and we'll go into the next sort of sub-theme, which is around, and you've touched on it, the relationship between truth and power. And I think maybe I'll phrase this as a kind of naive question directly to you, uh, Matthew, which is, well... Are you saying our leaders should be hundred percent truthful hundred percent of the time
0: well of course there's always the um there are there are argu- there are exceptions to that rule and they would claim there should be many more um national security is always quoted and um there are there are, there are those who say that um i mean to take a, a a very banal example you know the chancellor has every right to to be um Economical with the truth before a budget so that the market isn't distorted. But I think that we are (laughs) (laughs) we are we are richly entitled uh, at the moment given the fairly low bar um, to say that uh, it would be nice to have a little bit more uh, factual (laughs) representation in the political class. Um, I do worry that politics is at risk of becoming a branch of the entertainment industry, by which I mean that its uh, principal appeal is to emotion. And I think that you cannot understand Trump, to take the obvious and inevitable example, without... uh, You can't understand him in 20th century political categories of left, right, and so on. He he is a showbiz phenomenon. Uh, And it's interesting that the first row was over the um, inaugural, because, of course, his great obsession is with ratings. He has a brutal genius for uh, leveraging hate. And he used it to great success in the 2016 election. Now... Um, I don't think simply uh, demanding politicians tell the truth is going to, in in and of itself, create a a new generation of um, chastely truthful politicians, but I think it's a worthy objective. And the question really is how you you reconfigure politics in such a way that truth is rewarded, because the problem is that electoral politics is a very fast and loose game, and at the moment... Electoral politics is not rewarding truth-telling. It's rewarding um, uh, emotion, emotional appeal. That's that and charisma. And, and God help us, characters. Um, the Jacob Rees-Mogg phenomenon, I think, is one that is treated as amusing, but actually is deeply worrying. Thank you.
2: And, Hannah, and as I ask
0: you this, I'm conscious you know, of
2: your expertise, particularly with Hobbes, and maybe he'll be in the back of your mind, I don't know, but this relationship between... Uh, truth and power or authority, Mm. how do you Mm. come at that? Do you share Mm. Matthew's sort of sense the bar being low and that we've got to put some sort of practical considerations into the mix here?
4: Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, historically, um, power has in some kind of deep sense created truth. That's to say, in the deeply patriarchal world of ancient Greece, it was the truth that um, women had these inferior minds to men. Um, and uh, you know, and, and that, that, uh, this is sort of what Gramsci talks about with his idea of cultural hegemony, that the ruling classes cement their rule, cement their power by generating narratives that legitimize and reinforce that power. And of course, what was so exciting about the internet was that it offered the possibility to explode that, that kind of dominant narrativization and to give us new voices and alternative voices. But what's been kind of shocking, and this is what Matthew's been talking about, that that hasn't happened that it's not actually been a a democratization. You know, what's happened is that politics has harnessed the power of the internet to make things even worse, arguably. Power still creates truth, which is why I'm kind of so urgent about the fact that we have to keep on coming back with the truth-telling. But this this then goes to, to the kind of heart of Matthew's anxiety, which is that what seems to be happening now is that we're throwing the truth back that wasn't the inauguration, Trump. Or no, you know, you did say you wanted to move on that woman like a bitch, or whatever. No, you did say that. We've got the recording, we've got the photos, we've got the evidence. We're bringing evidence to bear, and even so, the re- the reply is coming. Oh, it was made up. Oh no, it was the Ukrainians, say the Russia, in response to the evidence-based uh, report that the Dutch have just brought out about the the, the downed uh, plane. But it was the Ukrainians. We know what are we going to do when people are so kind of. Flamboyantly careless um, with the evidence.
2: It's interesting, so there's that, that distinction between the evidence and the truth. Go on,
3: Hilary. So I think we have to se- separate. I mean, I agree so much with your, with your motivation here. I think we're exactly in the same space and motivation. The question is, what do we, what, as you say, what do we do about it? Because we do clearly have to do something about it. And I think that we, we first of all, we should make a distinction between lies and telling the truth. When people lie, they have an account in their head, as it were, of what they think. And they are choosing not to tell us that. They're choosing to change what they think in order to convince us of something or to lie. That's totally different from the idea of whether they've told the truth. I mean, you could um, actually be uh, lying in the sense of making something up but accidentally be telling the truth that you weren't aware of, in some according to some other model, as it were, some other narrative. So we have to be very clear about this distinction. When someone's lying, it's a psychological description of somebody making up something that they do not hold. They don't hold the world like that. They're just pretending. And we need to call that out. We always need to call it out. And I'm an ardent advocate of not lying in the, in the public, and indeed, as it happens, in the private space. So, <laughs> I think that there's just no room for maneuver there. There's no case for lying uh, about what you're up to. But that's not the same as somehow imagining there is some ultimate reality that would turn what you are say into the truth. And what we do have to do is, we have to not when we when we don't agree with somebody and we think that they are lying or they're uh, deliberately misrepresenting, we can't fall back on saying, "Oh no, you just need to tell the truth." Yeah, that's confusing the situation. What we it, we can't get people to tell the truth. There's a, there's a diff, lots of lots of different. Uh, ways of describing how things are, as Hannah has described, you know, in, in terms of is it a revolution? Is it a uh, is it a change of government? Is it you know there are there's an unlimited number of ways we can describe things, including those very factual things like there's a corkscrew in my ear. That's just you know it seems to be undeniable, but I've had those very conversations with you know leading philosophers about this, uh, about those sorts of examples, and you can't get to the bottom of them. So I think. We need to give up on the thinking we will defend our outlook by calling on this metaphysical, uh, religious notion of truth, and instead hold people to account absolutely determinedly with observation and reason in the context of their outlook. You can't, you can't say you've got to hold this outlook, but you've got to take their outlook and say, well, that doesn't make any sense. You were saying this a moment ago. That doesn't work.
2: OK, thank you, Hilary. And you've already begun to answer our, our last question of the three which we're trying to uh, grapple with today, which is, so what do we do about it, which is how you came at this. And again, I think we're lying a little bit there on your distinction, Hannah, between the epistemological or metaphysical notion of truth and the, for want of a word, a word moral or social necessity to, if not, demand that people speak the truth, at least not to lie or demand that they don't lie. Matthew, you talked to, in your opening you talked a little bit about digital literacy. You talked about other modes in which we might kind of break yeah. through a bit. Could you pick up a bit on some of those? Well,
0: or? I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting and, and probably um, chimes to what Hillary's saying is that um, simply bombarding people with um, quote unquote facts doesn't seem to make any difference. There's a lot of work that's been done by a guy called Brendan Nine at Dartmouth on this, which shows that it, uh, I mean, a good case study is. Um, when Obama was going through the so-called birther crisis uh, about his, where he'd been born, um, he, rather, in rather dignified fashion, decided to release the information in only a, a partial form, stage by stage. And it was only at the very end that he released the full birth certificate showing that he had indeed been born on US soil, as one would expect. However, the interesting thing was that the more he revealed, the stronger became the conviction of those who denied that he'd bor- been born on US soil. So in other words, the, the more quote-unquote factual information he provided, the more uh, the more uh, kind of entrenched they became in their belief that he was lying. So obviously it's not a straightforward matter. Now, uh, on a slightly different note, I, I think just to take one totally practical matter, because so much of this is concerned with the technological revolution of, of un, unknowable uh, duration and, and scope, I think it is amazing that, today's kids are not being taught digital literacy at least once a week from the age of five. Some of them are taught coding, if they're lucky, and a lot of them are taught uh, online safety, which is great. But neither of those are to do with the business of actually how to manage this astonishing new uh, access to information. They're presented with a white screen with Google and an envelope, and then that's it. And then they have the world and no means of knowing, really, which is trustworthy which isn't um, and i think literacy in that sphere is in it we're in the very foothills of dealing with it i would put a 10p tax on every handset in this country to be spent on training teachers in digital literacy because i think that, that, that it's absolutely necessary if tomorrow's uh, adults are going to understand the information that they have access to and how that they judge one source against another
2: thank you matthew very very interesting very practical Hannah, how would you sort of go about this? It's the what to do about it question.
4: Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, so I teach um, in a university and I mean, I spend my time teaching students precisely how to be critical about sources. I mean, so, and when I'm marking my essays, you know, they're not allowed to use Wikipedia. Um, so, but I mean, as Matthew said, it's not—it's not all right that that only happens when, by the time they get to do a high-level BA in history, um, that they need to be—they need to be um, learning that. Um, coincidentally, I do think that there's a question about regulation here. I think, I mean, obviously, this is what the kind of um, current debates um, are about um, in Parliament. Is you know, insofar as social media sites have de facto become news sites. Um, they ought, one might think, be subject to the same kind of regulation that the press is, um, and that sort of, go, that, well, we're supposed to be going that direction, but it's not obvious um, that we are. I mean, from a sort of much more broad point of view, I think we could do, you know, we could do a lot with social justice. We could, you know, we could raise taxation. We could invest in schools and, and health. We could have far more happy um, wh- people feeling dignity in themselves who aren't going to be easily lapping up the uh, the lies that they're being given. So I think there are, you know, there's kind of there there are there are as it were immediate um, solutions. There are da- little um, how we deal with the world as it is, but there's also changing the world that means that post truth does not have the same kind of traction that it does in our increasingly fragmented, individualized, neoliberal horror show.
2: See, this is a nightmare (laughs) for a chair, because I was trying to close things down and it's just all taken off again. But anyway, for now, temporarily, a temporary pause uh, on the debate. Can you join me in thanking our excellent panel, Hilary Lawson, Matthew D'Ancona and Hannah Dawson?
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.